Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Constitutional Convention. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Preparation. Eleven days before the convention was scheduled to meet, James Madison arrived in Philadelphia. The 36-year-old Virginian was eager to set the agenda and ensure that a strong national government would be created. He had served in the Virginia legislature from 1784 to 87 and had witnessed what he considered legislative chaos. Due to this chaos, Madison had studied confederacies through all time and came up with a list of their virtues and vices, which if you think about it is a pretty funny thing to do. And this is why scholars love Madison, because he's a very studious man. I'll just study all confederacies in all time and just list what they did right and wrong. The point is that he is ready with recommendations. And when you are ready with recommendations, you set the agenda and the tone of any meeting. Thus, Madison came to Philadelphia armed with his Virginia plan, which would create a national government that would act as a, quote, disinterested and dispassionate umpire in disputes between different passions and interests, end quote. He wanted, among other things, a strong national government that could actually veto state laws. Please turn to the next slide entitled, Business Tips. Very often, I hear students complain that they don't think history gives them any real-world lessons. Well, here's an example of how history can inform you in business, government, and in your private life. If you are ever going to have a meeting about anything regarding policy, finance, anything to do with your fraternity, sorority, or just any group, even in sports or academics, when you come to a meeting with a plan, you set the terms of debate. And if you have an agenda, you can control the meeting. In that way, you will have a better chance of winning, or at least getting most of your suggestions implemented. So here we will see Madison comes to the Constitutional Convention with a plan, and because of that, he then sets the terms of debate for the rest of the convention, because no one else has any ideas about how to get this done, but because he has a plan in place, he can not only suggest the terms of the debate, but he can also show how it could be implemented, and getting into specifics is the name of the game. So there you go, just a good example of history informing everyday life. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Washington Arrives. Now, before I continue, I want to tell you a George Washington story. During the Articles of Confederation period, Washington was at home on his plantation, making money off of other people's labor. Well, he began inviting people to join him at Mount Vernon to discuss the topics of the day. And two things Washington spoke about the most was the need of a strong central government and canals. I mean, literally, a guy who visited Washington for two days said that the entire time, Washington did not stop talking about canals and had given the gentleman, quote, canal fever and was convinced of his arguments. So can you imagine? You're going to go talk to one of the greatest men in the country. Maybe he'll tell you about the revolution or thoughts on government. No, it's building a canal. I always just found that very amusing. Anyway, on May 13th, 1787, Madison awoke to the sound of cannons, bells, and cheers because George Washington had arrived in town. Washington was always concerned about his reputation and had actually considered not going to the Constitutional Convention. 
but he believed that the national government had to be strengthened. He saw how his army had suffered as a result of the Continental Congress's lack of power, and men starve and froze to death at Valley Forge because of it. I'll make a note here about the way in which you get Washington to do anything is you talk to him about his reputation, and Hamilton is an expert at this. So Hamilton would say something like, You know, Georgie, if you do this, it might affect your reputation. It might affect how the country looks at you. And Washington would respond, Ah, uh, yes, Hammy, you're right, I should think about that. They didn't actually call each other Georgie and Hammy. I'm being facetious here. Anyway. Also attending the Constitutional Convention was Benjamin Franklin, and both of their presences gave the proceedings a legitimacy since both men were beloved by their countrymen. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Convention Begins. On May 25, 1787, delegates from various states gathered at the Pennsylvania State House, better known as Independence Hall. Eventually, delegates from every state except Rhode Island would attend. There was a very big debate in each state about whether or not to attend the convention at all. In total, 55 delegates attended between May and September, with an average of about 40 people present at all times. Most of these were wealthy planters, merchants, and lawyers, about 34 lawyers total. The average age of the group was 42, and we have to understand this is a self-selecting group. This means, if you were dead set against strengthening the government, you boycotted the convention. But there's a problem with that strategy. When you deny your voice to proceedings, it is easier to create a consensus or an echo chamber. And since there are all nationalists there, they all agree on strengthening the government. So next time you say, I'm going to sit this one out, I'm not getting involved with politics, well, you're merely denying your voice. You're not being heard. And that means that you're going to let a smaller group of very vocal members set the terms of debate. The point is that this meeting is known as the Constitutional Convention, and it was not really advertised at the time because most of the country was not on board, and this is technically a coup d'etat. Please advance to the next slide entitled Preliminaries. At the convention, James Madison sat up front where he could see everything and took personal notes. And this is great for historians and the public, because he does this for posterity. He wants people to know what they said and what they did, and is the most complete notes we have on the meeting, except for the jokes. Because for James Madison, there are no jokes in the Constitutional Convention. Well, the first order of business was to choose a presiding officer, and the choice was obvious. George Washington, who was selected unanimously. The next order of business was setting the ground rules, and they agreed that everything in the meetings would be kept secret. Why do you think that is? Well, just look at modern politics. People say things they think others want to hear, which means they don't speak their mind. But if you don't think anyone is listening, or that you don't have to worry about politics back home, you can say what you really think and feel. Delegates would be able to consider proposals that they thought their state legislatures might oppose but it also made many suspicious of the meeting back home. There is actually a very funny story about the secrecy of these meetings. While the convention was supposed to be secret, lots of people took notes. Well, there is a delegate called William Pierce, and he relates a story about wrapping up one day of debate 
and someone carelessly left pages of their notes on the floor. An aide found them and delivered them to Washington, who was very displeased. The next day, Washington got up and dressed down Congress. He said, quote, Gentlemen, I am sorry to find some one member of this body has been so neglectful of the secrets of the convention as to drop in the State House a copy of their proceedings, which by accident was picked up and delivered to me this morning. I must entreat, gentlemen, to be more careful, lest our transactions get into the newspapers and disturb the public repose with premature speculations. I know not whose paper it is, but there it is. And Washington then threw it on the table and said, Let him who owns it, take it. End quote. And at this time, Washington bowed, picked up his hat, and quit the room with what was described as a dignity so severe that every person seemed alarmed. Well, William Pierce is really nervous, and he looks through his papers and finds that some of his notes are missing, so he's now really worried. He goes up to the front, kind of like side-eyeballs them, realizes it's not his handwriting, he is very relieved, and he goes home. But then he realizes, oh geez, there's like two sets of notes out there now. So much for secrecy. In the end, no one ended up claiming the notes. They just let them stay there, anonymously up front, and no one ever touched them, lest they feel Washington's wrath. Debating the plan. After the preliminaries, the delegates got down to business. Madison was known as an ultra-nationalist who wanted a stronger government, and he felt that some people may reject his ideas out of hand, so he has a clever plan. He's going to deliver his ideas through the fellow Virginian, Edmund Randolph, who was much more popular than the bookish James Madison. And this is a solid strategy in any type of political or social debate. If Dianne Feinstein gets up in front of a crowd, you know she's going to talk about gun control. If Ted Cruz gets up, he's probably going to say something about low taxes and probably mention something that's very insensitive. So when you want to calx your plan, give it to someone else who is maybe more popular and less predictable than yourself. Anyway, not surprisingly, the Virginia delegation was the first to present Madison's Virginia Plan, which essentially called for a new national government. The Virginia Plan wanted a bicameral legislature with a lower body popularly elected and an upper body elected by the lower house. The legislature could negate state laws if unconstitutional, and representation would be based on state population. It also proposed an executive office and a qualified veto, though this was vague, and it also proposed a judicial branch. The next day, the convention approved a resolution that called for the creation of a national government consisting of a supreme legislative, executive, and judicial branch. So again, we see how setting the agenda lets you control the terms of debate, and it will more than likely make you successful. Despite coming with a plan, there were still a lot of questions to hammer out. What would this three-branch government look like? How would it operate? What would be its roles and responsibilities? Well, let's get to those finer points now. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Executive Branch. Out of the three branches, the executive was the first to be discussed, because the delegates believed this would be the less controversial than the legislative branch, which most assumed would be the most powerful of the three. Now, the debate centered around, should the executive be a single man or a triumvirate of men, with maybe one from each region? 
And a triumvirate means three, by the way. So, single executive might seem like too much of a monarch, but would a triumvirate ever be able to agree with one another? Should the executive be elected by the people? The national legislature? State legislatures? Or electors appointed by states? What power should the executive have? Would the executive be limited to a single term? How long would that term be? Should he be allowed to run for re-election? Would he be appointed for life? Well, after about four days of intense debate, the committee agreed on very little. Since many of the delegates believed that the specifics of the executive ultimately depended on the legislature, the delegates decided to turn their attention to that branch. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Debating the Legislature. The debate about the legislative branch, meaning Congress, revolved around two questions. Should it be unicameral, meaning one house, or bicameral, meaning two? The second question was should representation in Congress be equal or proportional based on a state's population? Madison and other delegates from the big states wanted a bicameral legislature with proportional representation in each house. However, William Patterson and other delegates from small states preferred the New Jersey plan, which said that Congress would be a unicameral house and each state would continue to supply one vote. The second part of the plan gave Congress the power to tax states based on their populations. In other words, big states would have to pay more, but would not get any more power in Congress. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Great Compromise. Most of the delegates from big states rejected this plan wholeheartedly, and some feared the convention might even break up over the issue. Shortly after, a motion was made to simply return to the Articles of Confederation. So, oh no, we're now backsliding. And into this moment steps Alexander Hamilton, who gets up and delivers what is described as a six-hour speech detailing his vision for government. And he basically lays out a similar government to the British, an elected executive for life, a permanent upper house like the House of Lords, and a powerful judiciary. Hamilton even declares that the British government was the greatest government on the face of the earth. Now, this speech is going to follow Hamilton for the rest of his life as a confirmation that he was a secret monarchist, and it tarnishes his reputation. So why did he do it? Well, one idea is that he had always been a nationalist, so maybe stronger government was just his issue, everyone knew it, so he may as well make the argument. Others think that this could be strategy. Show the people who are wavering that there is still an option for an extremely centralized powerful government, so why not convince them to accept the more moderate Virginia plan, which is not nearly as centralized? That's a good tactic for any debate. Go ahead and take the extreme, and hope that you end up in the middle as a result. The last theory about why Hamilton did this was the fact that he was merely one of three delegates from New York, and the other two were dead set against the Constitution, so his vote really didn't matter. So why not just get up and say what you think and put it on the record? And in the end, it's probably a mixture of all three theories. Well, regardless, in the end, the delegates barely agreed on what is called the Connecticut or Great Compromise. It had previously been proposed on a couple of occasions by Connecticut's Roger Sherman. By the way, Roger Sherman is going to be the relative of William Tecumseh Sherman, who will one day 
make Georgia howl. Sherman's plan called for a bicameral legislature, with representation in the lower house, meaning the House of Representatives, being based on a state's population, and representation in the upper house, meaning the Senate, would be equal representation. And it also agreed that all bills of appropriation could only originate in the lower house. By the way, a bill of appropriation means a budget. So why do you think they did this? Well, the idea is that the lower house is going to be more responsive to the people, and thus they will control the power of the purse. See, in this era, the lower house is elected by the people, while the Senate is appointed by the individual states. It is not until later amendments in the early 1900s that finally give senators the ability to be elected directly by the people. So as you can see, this comes from the experiences of the revolution and the desire to separate powers, especially when it comes to funding armies. In the end, this made the big states very happy and it appeased the smaller states. Please advance to the next slide entitled Slavery Debate. The next item on the agenda was the debate over slavery. But was it really even a debate at the time? A number of delegates agreed that slavery was a problem. Clearly, the institution did not mesh with the ideas of the revolution, and all the delegates knew this. Pennsylvania's Governor Morris called it a nefarious institution that brought down the curse of heaven on the states where it prevailed. He also said, quote, Upon what principle is it that the slaves shall be computed in the representation? Are they men? Then make them citizens and let them vote. Are they property? Why then is no other property included? The houses in this city of Philadelphia are worth more than all the wretched slaves which cover the rice swamps of South Carolina. The admission of slaves into the representation, when fairly explained, comes to this, that the inhabitant of Georgia and South Carolina, who goes to the coast of Africa, and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity, tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondages, shall have more votes in government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizens of Pennsylvania or New Jersey, who views with laudable horror so nefarious a practice. End quote. In response, Edmund Randolph of Virginia got up and said, quote, If slavery be wrong, it is justified by the example of all the world. In all ages, one half of man has been slaves, as well as the sanctions given to slavery in modern times. End quote. Nevertheless, the delegates ultimately decided to leave the issue alone. Many were slaveholders, who were tied to their slaves economically. And more importantly, the goal of most of the delegates was to create a stronger union, and southern states would have never accepted a constitution that banned slavery. And most of the delegates erroneously believed that slavery would eventually die out. As Connecticut's Oliver Ellsworth said, quote, Let us not intermeddle, because slavery in time will not be a speck in our country, end quote. While this seems naive to us today, we shouldn't view the past with a presentist eye, as the institution of slavery was becoming very unprofitable at the turn of the century. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Slavery's Constitution. Despite the fact that the word slave does not appear in the Constitution, slavery was federally protected in three specific clauses. Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 
said that for the purposes of representation in the House, slaves would be classified as three-fifths of a person. Basically, this means that you take all of the enslaved people in a state, count three-fifths of them towards representation in Congress, which in turn increases the power of the slave states. You see, at the convention, the five states where slavery was a major institution had 38% of the delegates, but at the first Congress after ratification, it became 45% because of this compromise. And this major increase in the political power of the slaveholding South will have major consequences. We should also note that this clause does not mean that African Americans are only three-fifths of an actual person. You see, free blacks at the same time were counted the same as whites in figuring out representation. It is tough to understand, but this logic of slaves of being subhuman does not originate here, though it was later used in pro-slavery ideology as it develops in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. The next federal protection of slavery is Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1. Quote, The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by Congress prior to the year 1808. End quote. What this means is the international slave trade and the importation of Africans into the continental United States could not be banned prior to 1808. And as we will see, it is in 1808 that the slave trade is finally banned, bringing an end, at least partially, to the international slave trade. It will unfortunately increase the value of those people already enslaved and lead to a spike in the interstate slave trade. The last federal protection of slavery is Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3. Quote, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in the consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered upon the claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. End quote. In other words, this is the Fugitive Slave Clause, requiring non-slave states to return the slaves to their slaveholders. In practice, this means a strong federal regulation that interferes with northern states' rights in order to force northern states to return southern slaves. As we will see, after 1850, the strengthening of this clause in the Compromise of 1850 will place a heavy burden on northern states to fulfill these obligations, and northern states will pass state laws forbidding them from doing so. So if anyone ever tells you that the South seceded over states' rights, they are either ill-informed or lying to your face. Southern states wanted stronger federal laws protecting slavery. They hated northern states' rights laws that did not require northerners to help southern slave catchers. So, again, states' rights, not a cause of the Civil War, unless you're talking about northern states' rights as the South wants stronger federal regulations protecting slavery. Again, memory versus history as a theme of this course. While I have laid out three strong protections of slavery, the Constitution did have a few loopholes that later abolitionists will use to destroy the sin of slavery. First, 
The Constitution gives the federal government the power over the territories, so they could make laws regarding freedom and enslavement therein. Second, Congress had the power to govern Washington, D.C., so eventually they can use their constitutional power to abolish slavery in the nation's capital. Third, the president is commander-in-chief, and the army protects the country, so if slave states rebel, you can destroy slavery using the army and your constitutional war powers. Lastly, the Constitution can be amended, so eventually, you can constitutionally abolish slavery. The point is that while the Constitution federally protects slavery in numerous cases, it also gives Congress and the President the power to eventually destroy the institution, as we will see in the American Civil War. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Convention Drags. By this point, the convention had been meeting for over a month. The doors had been locked, the windows shut, the blinds drawn, and the temperatures were blazing hot. The debates were tedious, the delegates were frustrated, and men were constantly coming and going. So going forward, whenever delegates reached an impasse, they often sent issues to smaller committees which worked things out and then reported to the convention at large. I mean, this is simple democracy. Have you ever tried to get 20 people to agree on anything? It's almost impossible. But if you break them up into groups of five, you may be able to make some progress. So, you know, democracy 101. The point is that this solution is going to be most prominent in the Electoral College. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Executive Decision. At this point, the convention went back to debate the executive branch, and most delegates agreed on the creation of a single executive because triumvirates were too ineffective, too hard to figure out who to select, and most important, the most famous triumvirate in history failed miserably. And who sat on that? Julius Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey. And you should all know how that turned out. The next question was how should the executive be selected? By Congress? Well, some fear that that would give the legislative branch too much power. What about the people? Many of the delegates simply didn't trust the people to think continentally and choose the right man. George Mason said, quote, it would be as unnatural to refer the choice of a proper character for chief magistrate to the people as it were to refer a trial of colors to a blind man, End quote. On July 26, the convention set to work on a committee of detail, which was supposed to clean up everything and make future recommendations. Among other things, the committee recommended that the executive be called the President of the United States because he presides and he should be addressed as Your Excellency. And just to note, John Adams hated this. He wanted to call it, quote, His Highness, the President of the United States of America, and the protector of its rights therein, end quote. And really, that does not roll off the tongue as well. Anyway, the debate over the President's election continued. And though, interestingly, no one worried about the first election, because everyone knew Washington would be elected, no matter who was given the power to choose. The problem is that if you allowed the people to choose, once Washington left office, how would they know who was best qualified? How would someone in Georgia know if someone from New Hampshire was suited for the office? Because remember, there's no mass media, there's no social media, and there isn't even political parties to educate the people about the candidates. 
Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Electoral College. In late August, this issue was sent to the new Committee on Postponed Matters, which sounds exactly like the group you want to decide on one of the most important features of the Constitution. After meeting for almost a week, the committee essentially recommended that the president be chosen by an electoral college. Go ahead and read the text of Article 2, Clause 2. Each state shall appoint in such a manner as the legislature may direct a number of electors, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which that state may be entitled in Congress, but no senator or representative, or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States, shall be appointed an elector. The electors shall meet in their representative states and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall be not an inhabitant of the state themselves. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the president, if such a number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the second number of votes shall be the vice president. Now, note the part in italics is going to be later superseded by the 12th Amendment because it will lead to a near-constitutional crisis during the election of 1800. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Electoral College Part 2. Later, when political parties are established, this no longer works, because you could get two different parties into the executive branch. So can you imagine in the last election, if Donald Trump had won as the president, and Hillary Clinton had been his vice president. And honestly, I would have paid to see that. However, the true problem with this is that there is a possibility that a party's vice presidential candidate could get more votes than its presidential candidate. So as I said before, this will be rectified in 1804 with the passage of the 12th Amendment, which requires two separate votes, one for president and one for vice president. We should all be aware that we still use the Electoral College to this day in a slightly different form. Each state gets a number of electors equal to its number of senators and representatives. So, for example, Arkansas has two senators and four representatives, thus six electoral votes. As you should know, which candidate gets a state's electoral votes? Well, whichever candidate wins the state's popular vote. Prior to this, some states split its electoral votes by a proportion to the popular vote, but this was later changed in numerous states, making it a winner-take-all system. And this led to some problems, as some voters in solid red or blue states don't want to vote since they think it won't matter. Well, regardless, a presidential candidate needs 270 electoral votes in order to win. And you all have a question to consider. Now that we have political parties and a media to tell us about candidates, should we get rid of the electoral college and use a simple, straight, popular vote. Well, there's numerous sides to this. What do you do about ties? How do you protect the votes of more rural states to populous states? How do you resolve the issue of more popular votes for a candidate, yet only receiving a minority of the electoral votes? Does the size of a state mean more than the size of the people therein? Basically, are cow pastures and cornfields worth more than a city full of people? And you get to decide. Though we should note that for the past 30 years, a minority of voters have selected a president over the wishes of the majority. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Rights. In the final days of the convention, Virginia's George Mason stood up and proposed created committee to draft a national bill of rights. And every state delegation voted against this proposal. 
Each state's constitution already had a Bill of Rights, and most delegates thought that the National Bill of Rights would be redundant. Well, what is a good thing about having a Bill of Rights? That's right, you list out all of the rights you have, with specific enumerated protections. What do you think is bad about this? Well, if a right is not specifically listed, maybe the authorities or government will ignore them. They'll say that you don't have them. Can you think of any rights right now that some of us enjoy that are not specifically listed in the Constitution that some might say you don't deserve to have? I'm sure you can. In addition, if you obey the letter of the law of the Constitution, it does not give you much room for modernization or adaptation, though it does keep the Constitution insulated from popular passions. The point is that we debate these issues to this day, though each side of the argument tends to abandon principle in pursuit of power. Regardless, Mason was one of several delegates who refused to sign the Finnish Constitution as a result of this argument, and on September 17, 1787, 39 delegates signed the new Constitution for the United States of America. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Final Product. The Constitution contains a short preamble and seven articles. Quote, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. End quote. While that sounds great, Sam Adams and other delegates were royally pissed off. He says, what? We the people? It should be we the states. Why do you think this is a problem? Because it suggests a direct relationship between the federal government and a state citizen, seemingly undermining state power, as now you are not only a citizen of a state, but a citizen of the United States, with constitutionally and federally protected rights. And often, as we will see, the federal government will try to protect these rights, while states tend to try to abuse them. Now, because I don't have any faith in your high school civics teachers, I mean, do they even teach civics in high school anymore? I don't think so. So let's go ahead and go through the constitutional arguments, so that way, if anyone can ever say, read the Constitution, you can respond, I have. Article 1 deals with the legislative branch, and Congress is given extensive powers, including the power to tax. Section 1 to 7 pertain to legislature structure, powers, responsibilities, and age requirements. It also enshrines a list of enumerated powers, or delegated rights and authorities to the Congress, such as taxation, borrowing money, regulating commerce, naturalization, bankruptcy, coining money, establishing a post office, using patent or copyrights, creating courts, declaring war, creating an army and a navy, and governing the District of Columbia. Article 1, Section 8, Number 18, also creates implied powers, which says, quote, Congress shall have the power to make all laws which may be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof, end quote. Basically, 
the founders knew that they did not know everything and could not predict the future, so they wanted to give the government the ability to modernize and adapt to meet new challenges. There is one last section of Article 1 that you may find interesting and may have never heard of, which is called the Title of Nobility Clause. Quote, No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, accept any president, emolument, office, or title of any kind from any king, prince, or foreign state. And this is also called the emolument clause. Now think about that. If you are part of the United States government, not a relative, but part of the government, you cannot accept any present, any money, nothing from any foreign prince or state. Go ahead and do a couple of Google searches, and you will find this is widely abused across the country. I will also note that this emolument clause was later proposed to be expanded in two separate amendments in 1810 and 1812, and it only failed by the votes of two states. And I really wish they had done better. Article 2 deals with the executive branch. It discusses the commander-in-chief, how the electoral college works, and the responsibilities of the president. And it also gives you Article 2, Section 1, Clause 7, which we call the Domestic Emolument Clause. Quote, The president shall, at stated times, receive for his services a compensation which shall be neither increased nor diminished during the period which he shall have been elected, and he will not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. End quote. In other words, you cannot give money to try and bribe the president or any officer of the government. And again, as we have seen, this is now wildly abused today, and our politics is infected with money ever since the Supreme Court decision at Citizens United. Article 2, Section 4 lays out the impeachment process and says that the president, the vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office and impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, end quote. In total, there have been three impeachments of presidents in U.S. history, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. Nixon was almost impeached, but resigned before trial. Now let us note, impeachment is an inherently political process, but also a legal one, Impeachments do not mean removal from office. They are merely an investigation into if an official has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Before impeachment hearings, the House gathers evidence, takes witness depositions, and selects experts to give testimony. All of this is done behind closed doors at first, much like a criminal investigative process that leads to a grand jury. Once all of this is done, the House presents these findings in open congressional hearings where witnesses or experts take oaths and deliver their testimony, while other evidence is also presented. Once the House concludes this process, they then vote on whether or not the charges and evidence are sound and declare whether or not high crimes and misdemeanors have been committed. Then, the House sends the investigation to the Senate for a full trial and potential disciplinary actions. Now, recently, there has been a lot of false information about impeachment, specifically related to our most recent one. So I really just want to point out 
that in every single impeachment of a president in U.S. history, the administrations cooperated with the House investigation. They did not obstruct it. And the Senate has always allowed further witnesses to be called and was not blocked by presidential directives forbidding them from answering subpoenas. And you should note that all of these precedents were not respected in the most recent impeachment. And I'll leave it at that. Article 3 deals with the judicial branch. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 1, establishes judicial review and says that the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and councils, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and a citizen of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under the grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign state citizens and subjects. Basically, all that is to say that the judicial branch has the ability to declare certain laws unconstitutional and to resolve disputes between various constituents and foreign governments. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2 sets up the Supreme Court and has it as the appellate jurisdiction. Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1, establishes treason against the United States, which consists only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So again, a lot of times you will hear people say, this is treason, that is treason. Well, the fact is that only levying war or giving aid and comfort to national enemies can be convicted as treason. Though that still gives a lot of leeway for the judicial branch to decide what is levying war or giving aid and comfort. Article 5 declares that the Constitution can be amended. If you don't like something about the government, you can vote. You can support amendments to change things. Remember, don't just not participate. People literally died for your rights and you should use them. Article 7 states, quote, The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states, so ratifying the same. So in other words, this ratification of the constitution will be led by state conventions, not by the Articles of Confederation Congress. And that's pretty much a smart move, because... Why would you vote yourself out of existence? The point is that the Constitution is a framework. It has a lot of ambiguities, a lot of vague language, and it is specific about only a few powers. Hence, why we continue to be divided by constitutional interpretations to this day. The Founders didn't agree. That's why it's ambiguous. And if they couldn't agree, what hope do we? I hope you will all please prove me wrong on that point. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Conservative Safeguards. In many ways, the Constitution serves as a check on the mob, or of democracy. The delegates at the Constitutional Convention were unanimous in their feeling that universal manhood suffrage, or widespread democracy, was something to be feared and fought. And so they placed a number of safeguards into the Constitution to protect the power of the elites from the people. First, 
federal judges are appointed for life. Next, presidents are chosen indirectly by electoral college delegates. Senators are chosen indirectly by state legislatures, and only the House of Representatives was permitted to choose their officials directly by a vote of qualified, meaning propertied, white male citizens. And this leads us to ask the question, is the Constitution a conservative triumph? Please advance to the next slide for that answer. In a very real way, the Constitution of the United States is a conservative triumph. The Nationalists had won as the leaders of state ratification conventions, and they were those who had attended the Constitutional Convention. Ratification would have come easier if the Bill of Rights had been included prior to ratification, and the Articles of Confederation were overthrown by a minority of conservatives. In effect, 11 states seceded from the Confederation, and two were left out in the cold, and many ex-revolutionary leaders were now peacefully overthrown, and so you could call this a counter-revolution to a widespread emergence of democracy. And remember, the majority of the American people had not spoken. Only one quarter of adult males had voted for delegates to ratifying conventions. The Constitution would have easily been defeated if there had been universal manhood suffrage. The safeguards put by those elites were erected against mob rule, and democracy was limited during the early years of the American Republic. In addition, this restored the economic and political stability of the colonial era, though the economy continued to suffer. However, the principle of a popular, democratic government was preserved, and the checks and balances were reconciled over potentially conflicting principles of liberty and order. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.